Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. It's Monday, the 8th of February, and this is episode 106 of the Make the Farmers podcast. I'm your host, Ben Eagle. I've got a farmer focus session for you today, which we're going to dive straight into. Last week, I spoke to Wiltshire based mixed farmer David Butler. It's farmer focus. Hello, everybody. This evening, I am speaking to Wiltshire based mixed farmer David Butler. Yes, it's time for farmer focus. David farms 710 hectares uh, with a business consisting of dairy, arable, beef, HLS, contract farming, and property lets. David, welcome to the show. And that's that's a, just a short list, um, but as anyone involved in farming will know, each of those um, takes up a lot of time, and there's a lot to do with all of them. And then also you have yeah you have family life and everything else as well. So I'm I'm really really there's looking forward to this. On. And thank you, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for the opportunity. Let's let's start about talking about your part of the world first of all. Um, what's going on? there with you in Wiltshire. Okay. Um, yeah, so um, I've always lived in Wiltshire. I'm very, very um, fond of the county, as you'd expect. It's, um, it is my home. Um, and it's, uh, it's a landlocked county. Um, and uh, we, we, we're sub- supposed to be in the southwest. I think we should have our own category called the Central South. Yeah, I've, um, I've often thought that. Yeah, because <laughs> we, we, we're kind of, I feel we're um, not Kind of the southwest is like Dorset or Devon or Cornwall. We don't feel that southwest, but we, we're certainly not southeast. So um, we, we, we're categorised as southwest, and that's fine. Um, but uh, it, it's, a, it's a special county in terms of what it's famous for. Obviously, everyone thinks of Stonehenge. Uh, most people have driven past that on the 303, um, if, if nothing else. Um, crawled, crawled past it. It, it, it is symbolic <laughs> of, of the enormous amount of history here. And there's a lot of pre-Roman history all over the county. Uh, across the tops of the hills in particular. Um, so it's also famous for Avery, which I'm a bit closer to, and that's got oh, okay. some fantastic um, uh, Neolithic sites. Um, let's go back to the beginning. We're not going to go about that far, uh, okay. but let's go back to the beginning of beginning of you, um, your childhood. What kind of kid were you? And, and did anyone did anyone particularly influence you in, in your early life? First of all, obviously, I, I was one of three, so I've got my two sisters. Okay. Uh, they're both younger than me. Um, so Kate was closest to me in age. She's a, a couple of years younger than me. You know, we kind of grew up together. But actually beyond that, I was I was probably quite quite a quiet, quite a nervous child, I think. That's fair to say. I wasn't um, I wasn't very boisterous. And um, so outside of the family, I probably kept to myself, I kept to myself a bit on so it's one of the consequences of living on a farm. Um, quite isolated um, you know it wasn't in a settlement and and it was out even you know we're a mile out from the village so often I, had, I did have to amuse myself quite a lot um, I, 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 I out on the farm um, but obviously I had my immediate family but uh, yeah I was, I was probably quite a, a quiet um, timid child I think in some respects but uh, from a very early age I, I really you know, had uh, developed a passion for farming I loved um, I, I love farming there was a, a story as a toddler um, when I uh, when I first when I was was very young, we actually didn't live at the farm. We lived we lived at, um, a mile down the road. But there was there was cattle in the fields outside the outside where we lived. And uh, there was one time when um, it was suddenly apparent I, I I wasn't in the house. I, I was only I'd just been toddling off, you know, got toddling age, and I <laughs> I walked off and got into the middle of this field of cows. Mum and Dad had this kind of dilemma: what are we going to do? Because he's only like two, and obviously pretty upset probably that I walked off. Yeah, got out into this cow. So there was just slightly this, stressed. 
there was this big circle of cows and uh, so they kind of came up very carefully and quietly so I didn't get kind of trampled and then I just kind of um, made a, a kind of loud noise and waved my arms and, and the cows wow. responded and I, out I toddled and I was okay but I, I seemed completely unfazed by being surrounded by these cows a and, very early stockman and, instinct yeah, yeah. And, and so so i had the instinct to look after cows and, and live to tell the tale <laughs> um so uh, but in terms of an influencer a bit later yeah. on in life obviously um the biggest influence in my life has obviously been my family and, and in particular my father who um is just an inspiration um and uh, for my oracle farming oracle really in so many ways i'm very lucky to have him with me farming uh, and mum and mum as well um in a partnership um, but outside of my immediate family, um, I'd have to kind of think of a, 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 this amazing character we have on the farm called uh, Darkie. Well, that was that was what everyone knew him as, and okay. he was um, one of the farm team. Um, and he actually started off um, by in Germany in the Second World War, and um, he was on a as a German, he was on a, a boat in the Mediterranean which was sunk. So he was captured and he was a prisoner of war. And after the war ended, um, some of these people were reallocated onto farms. And I often think how tough that must have been when you were 17 or 18, didn't really know English, you know, in another country, uh, in the country that you've been at war with, to then be put on a farm and, and work there. But he stayed on the farm his entire life. So he worked with three generations of my family, with my grandfather, wow. with my father. And, um, and he, he, he was um, there for quite, quite a bit of my life. And he always called me boy. But he, um, his main roles on the farm was to work with, um, with the turkeys. We had a lot of turkeys back then. Right, okay. And I enjoyed working with him on, on that. Um, he kind of tried to teach me to drive a tractor, which didn't go terribly well the first day. <laughs> it ended with a bit of a crash. Uh, you know, to tell the tale. Um, but he, uh, he just told me to get on with it. And so I had a go and it didn't, didn't end well. <laughs> Um, uh, but uh, and, and also the other thing that he was he was he was very good at doing was he dried all the in the crops in our in our um, very ancient grain drawer at the time, um, which was a bit of bit of a death trap. But um, uh, I was always quite fascinated by this very noisy, loud um, kind of you know, smoking equipment, and and so I, I, I often shadowed him to kind of uh, learn what on earth was going on and again survive somehow. And um, uh, and actually, ever since I've always done the kind of grain drying on the farm and and uh, and, the, and the storage side. So, yeah, the, this this um, extraordinary character. He, he had he was such a had such a strong work ethic and and um, uh, and he was very good with the livestock and everything else. So he was quite a big influence outside of obviously the huge influence of my family. And then Darkie was this um, kind of slightly wurzel gummage. Um, but, but slightly old school, but just an amazing, an amazing character on the farm. And you went to Reading, um, and yes. then Sarancester. Tell me yeah. about, tell me about your student times. Sure. Um, yeah. So even from an early age, I always said I'm going to be a farmer. It, it, it bored bored everyone, I think. But at school, I was always known as <laughs> the farmer. I, there was there was never any question I'd do anything else. I had at school, I had quite a few of the teachers kind of would take me to one side and, and really try and persuade me to do something else. So I went like it. You know, really to think about another career, but I wouldn't, wouldn't be swayed. Um, so uh, then uh, after school, I did uh, manage to get a place at Reading University to do agriculture. Um, and overall, three very happy years where I, I met, um, I, I guess, the best friends of my life, really. Yeah. Um, I like the university um, scale. I like the fact there were people from all walks of life, yep. uh, which was a good thing. Um, I like the fact that actually I lived in in Reading as a town, of course, not a city. Reading is a town, so I lived in in Reading, the, the centre of Reading, which was a bit of an eye opener, but a, yeah. a good thing for me to do. And it was 
you know, the first time really I'd been properly, I guess, away from away away from the farm in that sense, and, and living uh, independently um, with you know, with a bunch of students in the student house and everything. Uh, it was a good education there. Um, it was quite broad. It wasn't specifically just for farming, and it was it was more perhaps for, for professional careers um, like agricultural support for nutritionalists yeah. and, uh, and advisors rather than kind of a hands-on course like you get at college. Um, but it was it was three happy years at Reading, uh, which I very much enjoyed. And uh, I then wasn't still happy to then rush back to the farm. So I found an excuse to do one, one year <laughs> of a post-grad course at Sirencester, okay. uh, which was um, advanced farm management, uh, which was much more practical and um, closer to what, what I probably needed to, to do. It was more home to what you know, my future career, really. Um, so that, that, that year went quite fast. So again, I, get, I met, met some interesting people there. Um, there was a lot of um, case studies and a lot of going on to farm. Um, and, and so that I, found, I found that helpful too. So yeah. that was well, my educational years, back, right back in between 93 and 97, a long time yeah. ago. And perhaps actually focusing on your farm, then during those years what, what did the business look like then what what was going on um well uh, uh dad was always a, a, a tour de force so even though i was away um he'd uh, he, you know he, he, he was a, um, always driving the farm forward um back uh, in the early days we actually had two dairies um right. so he, he he had um we had more milking cows back then than we have now we had about 300 milking cows over over two units um, but the arable acreage would be considerably less than what we would do now. Um, uh, so, what, so when I, and I came back uh, um, at that stage, my father was was starting to do uh, quite a lot of work with the NFU. So when I finished university and finished college, it was around the time Dad was um, doing quite a lot with the, with the cereals um, side of the NFU. Yep, it worked quite well. That when I came back, I could um, we weren't kind of treading on each other's toes. Yep, and. Um, and so it was not, and he kind of needed my help really a little bit because obviously with him away, it was useful to have me um, back and keeping an eye on things. Um, so yeah, back then, it, I mean, it wasn't um, it wasn't a million miles different to how things are now in terms of we were an arable, we were a mixed farm um, with with arable enterprises and and arable crops and um, and a dairy. So yeah. in that sense, we haven't kind of transformed and changed um, the, you know, the sectors we're doing. Yeah, I mean, let's let's bring us uh, right up to date and talk. Yeah. I mean, because you've got, by its very nature, a mixed farm is quite a diverse business. Can you just talk listeners through the various enterprises first of all, just to give an sure. idea of all okay. that diversity? Yeah, um, well, the, our business structure um, is not that unusual these days. But to step back, we have we have two businesses. So we have a family partnership, uh, which has four partners: my parents, myself, and my wife. And then we have a, also have a contracting company, um, limited company as well, um, and uh, and that's uh, has directors. It's just it's just me and father. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of like two businesses that are, are physically separate. And the contracting company then does the contracting both for the home farms and for some other local farmers as well. But so that there's a physical separation. So that the family partnership has the dairy, uh, and it has has um, the arable businesses, but the, the operations are done by the contracting company. Okay. Um, and in terms of uh, other enterprises, we, by having the dairy, we also have uh, beef calves that come through as well. And we, I mentioned the chalk downland. Oh, I mentioned it in Wiltshire. We have quite a lot of chalk yeah. downland on our farm. So we need um, to have quite a few um, beef animals to actually graze uh, that chalk downland through the year. So 
where we are now, we have a, we have a dairy that um, has about 280 milking cows. Um, we're on a, a line a contract with the supermarket. And that's become really, really probably, I think, the most important part of our business actually now. Okay. Um, beyond, beyond that, as I say, with the, the, the arable side, we're growing the traditional crops you'd expect. So we're doing um, uh, wheat, barley, oats, oilseed rape. And this year, the oilseed rape all worked. <laughs> so I was thinking we were going to have to kind of throw in the towel on oilseed rape, but then suddenly we pulled a year this autumn where it's all, all grown. Um, and, and spring beans. Um, but I would say that with quite a lot of the arable crops, we're trying to grow crops at a premium. Um, so we're, we're trying to grow milling wheat. Um, we also grow a couple of seed crops for, for, for some seed companies as well. So, so okay. we're growing seed wheat. Um, and, uh, and obviously with the spring barley, it's malting barley. Um, so we're trying to attract premiums where we can on, on the arable crops. Dad always described, describes it with our business that we like to think of it as like a three-legged stool, so, um, uh, which hopefully makes us a bit more resilient. So you have um, the arable, um, the arable enterprises, uh, or arable crops, the um, dairy enterprise, but then the third, the third side of the stool is, is um, some property lets, um, which sounds exciting, it's not huge enough, but it's about six properties, um, but that's a nice uh, bit of income that, that comes in um, that actually, uh, how do you put it? Well, it, it, it's, it's reliable. So obviously, yeah. it gets yeah. in bad weather. It isn't. It shouldn't affect the in, income of the property lets. And fortunately, it hasn't been holiday lets, so there hasn't been this an issue with the pandemic or anything. Yeah, um, it's really, it's a really interesting point generally. Actually, in terms of yeah, I quite like that analogy of those of those three legs because for and it's a question I ask quite a lot mixed farms and uh, mixed farmers is if if one of those legs were to be removed, how would how, how would it affect you? Yeah. Yeah, well, um, I mean, the, the arable and the dairy are very much integrate together, as, as you'd understand. So they do rely on each other in terms of, I, I haven't talked about our soil types. So I mentioned that um, Wiltshire has a lot of chalk downland, which we've got some, but where we actually farm is in, in the Vale of Pusey. And that's like a vein of green sand. It's a really uh, fertile soil type, but it, it, um, it's one you can get wrong. And when I say get wrong, if you let the organic matter go too low, it can erode, it can wash. Um, and that's, it's not good news for me. I'm much more conscious of it these days. It's not good news, it's not good news for my bottom line. But also as we have the River Avon that runs through the middle of the valley, um, which is, which is a, a world renowned chalk stream, um, we, know we, we have to be responsible on, 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 that, on that front. And we don't want to see um, unnecessary erosion uh, if it's gonna, gonna pass on into the Avon. So the point about that is that we, we use quite a high uh, return of farmyard manure from the livestock side and it keeps the organic matter levels up on our soil and, and then holds it all together better. So um, the, the two um, on the home farm, certainly the, the two um, core enterprises of the dairy and the arable just, just really all um, work well together in yeah. that sense. Before we started recording, we were talking a bit about uh, your team. So I was introducing yes. your team. Um, and I mean, across all these various enterprises, how do you manage your time? Um, and and who else is involved? How, how, how are you managing everything together? Well, I, I never seem to stop. I'm a, I'm, I'm, it's, a, it's a busy life. But actually, if I say that we've got six members of staff, then people will probably think, well, what's his problem? We've got six members of staff, then, <laughs> then, then, then uh, it, it shouldn't be too bad. But uh, um, there's no one at the management level other than me and father to start yeah. with. Um, there's a lot to do as well. There's, there is a lot to do. So in my case, I'm doing um, all the spraying operations and across all the contract farming and rain farming, that's, 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 that's a lot of work through the year. Um, but uh, yeah, obviously team management is really important. Roughly speaking, we have three members of, 
um, the team on the livestock side on, for the dairy and the beef. And then we have three people on the on the team of the arable. Um, okay. So that, that's, that's how we have six. But um, uh, and obviously they, there's also into intermixing in, in terms of roles as well. So the people uh, on the arable side of the business are pretty glad at the moment to have some livestock work to do because we're not doing a lot of field work. But it's another benefit of mixed farming that um, my arable team. My, some of the, I said I said I've got a newish team and there's some new people and they've been on a few a few weeks. And Daniel is I've not been here many weeks. So, Gosh, you're a busy farm, he said. And I said, well, you haven't got going yet, Dan. And it's, it's the middle of winter. That he said, I can't believe how busy you are and how, how much there is to do. And I said, well, yeah, it is a bit like that. But that is mixed farming. There's always more repairs and, uh, and you know, life, livestock is never ending. But yeah, yeah. It's a side issue. But actually, at the moment, that's it's been very, with the pandemic, with so much else going on, it's been great to actually be able to rely on focus of the farm to kind of distract from, from, from you know, some of the horrible things that have been going on, really. You're clearly very close with your family. Um, yeah. how, again, but you do have a very busy life. Um, how do you how do you manage how do you manage to spend or as much time as possible with, with the family as well? Well, obviously, at the moment we're all homeschooling, so um, I'm, I'm very lucky to have a wonderful wife, Catherine, uh, who's through in the other room at the moment, and um, she's been admittedly doing the lion's share of the of the, um, the homeschooling. But I'm also lucky to have Catherine as, as someone who's become really passionate about the dairy as well. Um, okay. And uh, so she, she's sharing a lot of the management uh, work with me um, and uh, she, she does the calves most weekends and she did the calves this morning. So she's doing a lot of work with the calves, which she really enjoys. Uh, and I'm just lucky to have um, have her really kind of developing an interest and a passion um, uh, for, you know, for, 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 for the, um, for the da- dairy side of the business. And, uh, and I'm still very lucky to have my parents who are both now in their 70s, but they're still living on the farm and still um, very much want to be involved. Yeah. Um, I, and I think they'll want to be involved as long as they can. Um, so, so I'm lucky, lucky in that sense too. So that does free up some time for me. Otherwise, it, uh, I, I, well, effectively, one day I probably have to have another level of management of people to help, you know, to, to help me um, to take on with some of the things that others are doing. But I say, lucky to have Catherine there, um, really keen and interested, and um, like you know, and got the bug from me. Yeah, I suppose. yeah. Uh, we're now going to move on to the part of the show where we talk about. Uh, bigger questions uh yeah. well what industry but i mean before the interview i ask you um to give me uh some of the biggest challenges um that you think are in british ag at the moment and you gave me two uh, for the short term you said the removal of basic payment scheme subsidies based on land area for yeah. any non-farmers who are listening um it's a, I mean, it is a massive one. It is a massive it one. Massive and to one. be honest, it's it's the probably one of the main things that we're going to be discussing on the podcast over the next year or so. Um, how will that impact your business? And what are you doing now to plan for the transition away from BPS? Um, well, I think uh, a number of ways. First of all, um, uh, like a lot of farms, we've got for, for good reasons. We've got quite quite a lot of farm farm borrowing. Um, because um, there's a proportion of the farm. When I first came back to the farm, we were a tenant. We were, we were, I was the tenant, and then we had the opportunity to, to, to buy that farm with me as a sitting tenant. We, we took that opportunity. But as a result, we have a, a farm mortgage. So one of the priorities, and that's um, been in place for quite a few years now, but one of my priorities has been to, to kind of chip away at that as much as yep. I can and to, um, you know, to, to get our borrowings to a level that I'm comfortable we can take some hits because the main thing about the support we have had, which we've been lucky to have over the last uh, generation really, 
is, is it's a buffer to take us through difficult years. And as we all have seen with, in the last few years with, with difficult weather, um, harvests can, can go pear-shaped, can't they? Uh, okay. And the support has been that there is a very valued lifeline to, 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 to kind of even the bumps, the bumps out in the road. Um, so we, we all as farmers need to make sure that we can, um, we can ride those bumps in the future um, without, that, without that cushion of the, of the support. Um, but for us personally, as I said, mixed farming is something we feel very passionately about here. Um, and so um, when we have been able to do some investments and what we're looking at still investing is, is, has been on the dairy um, because we feel that isn't so dependent on, uh, on support as perhaps other sectors. Yep. So we did a new parlour and um, collection yard and, uh, and a fresh cow, cow yard about six years ago. And we're just putting in the planning application now for, for, for another building as well for the, for the dry cows. <clears throat> so when we are investing, that's what we've invested in. Um, and my gut feeling, I mean, who knows what's going to happen in markets. And at the moment, with, with wheat knocking on £200 a tonne again, we all feel quite confident that, no, that it, it feels pretty good. But uh, um, we've seen the roller coaster of, um, of cereal commodities before. And if it you know, plunged back to 120 or something, it wouldn't be very clever. So our gut feeling here, rightly or wrongly, is that the large-scale arable will be tricky. That isn't to say we don't need the benefits of mixed farming I've talked about. We need the straw, um, and, 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 we, and, and also by having the livestock, we have some better rotation. So it's still going to be there. Um, but it, it may be more tricky, I think, for large-scale arable enterprises. But for us as well, having moved into contract farming, that's a very good way of sharing risk with, with, other, with, with the clients that we work with. Hopefully, we... We give them a good, good, good return, and and we perform well as contractors. But from our point of view, that is slightly lower risk than perhaps say taking on an FBT. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so that's something we've done, and I can see in the future as well. Um, property lets are still going to be there, and I hope we can maybe have maybe increase the number of properties that we we have have to let in the future. Um, my wife's always been very keen to look at whether because because as I said, Wiltshire is quite a, a tourist trap. Mm -hmm. um, and whether in the future we might be able to do some Airbnb um, with, with, with some future, and there may be some other buildings that we can look at whether we do some you know, conversions or something. So that's something we're, you know, we're, we're, think, we're thinking about. I mean, it's a sidetrack, isn't it? But with the pandemic, I get this gut feeling that we're not going to be able to kind of travel around the world quite as freely as we, as we were. And so yeah. all of us are going to be doing more staycations in the UK. But that's definitely an opportunity for farmers to think how can we, um, we can meet that demand. Um, so, and, and um, perhaps it would be you know, a good source of income, or well, is a good source of income for farming, but it might become increasingly important because I think we're going to have to all do more holidays in the UK, aren't we? Yeah, no. Um, and the other challenge you mentioned, which I suppose is, is sort of linked to what you've just said in some ways, um, is transitioning to net zero. Um, yes. What are you doing or planning to do on the farm to achieve this? Yeah. Um, well, uh, you, you mentioned before the interview as well how you're you know, planning to do a lot of trees and, and a lot of hedges. Um, I'd like to kill, probably a bad expression to use, but I'd like to kill two birds with one stone. Um, so we've got you know, the, the issues of net zero, I'm completely on board with how important that is, but also we've got the biodiversity issue, which we're going to talk about in a minute. Yeah. Um, and we can kill two birds with one stone in a way by doing more planting and, and, and I'm thinking more hedges, uh, more trees into our farming systems. Um, because we all know that um, if when there's this slight misconception that if you've got a mature wood that it's um, it's it's still storing more carbon year by year, but actually a mature wood 
which reaches a kind of equilibrium, as I understand it. But a, a new wood, if you put in new trees, so you start with a arable field and you put in a new wood, then obviously that is accumulating carbon on an annual basis. So I would like to do um, more trees and hedges as a, as a starting point. Yeah. Um, and um, depending on the measure you use, about 8% of our farm at the moment, our cropped area is used for wildlife habitats. And I can see that increasing quite substantially. And, uh, we'll see how Elms works out, but uh, maybe that'll be up to and maybe 15% of our area. So that for me is an important point. And I, you know, I said I can talk all night about it. I can talk all night about net zero. I think it's, it's fascinating. I, I always rather flippantly say, if you wanted me to net zero, I could net zero the whole farm tomorrow because you shut all the gates and you don't do anything and it would all you know, rewild itself away. And but that isn't, that isn't gonna work because first of all, I'd bankrupt myself pretty quickly. <laughs> didn't, uh, didn't, didn't use the farm. Um, it, it, to, to produce crops or, 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 or you know, for, for livestock. So that, that would be the, the first kind of floor, floor of that plan. Um, but secondly, obviously, the, the other issue is that if, you, if, if we just rely on uh, rewilding or, or, or planting, then we're just basically offsetting um, food requirements to other parts of the world. So if other places, i.e. Brazil, have to chop down more rainforests to grow the crops that we were growing and then yeah. lug them over in a boat, then we haven't gained anything. And, and the honest truth is that we're, we're all enthusiastic, or the vast majority of us are enthusiastic about net zero, but none of us really have the answers yet. I've heard um, the supermarket we work with uh, are very, you know, very enthusiastic about you know, going down the net zero road, and I understand it. And we all, we all see, the, see, see the benefits of that, but none of us really know quite how to get there yet. And it probably is a bit like the three-legged stool earlier. There, there's probably a multi, multi-pronged approach. We probably need to be more productive uh, on some of our ground. I think we do need to um, you know, value our wild areas more. Um, perhaps we need to have more renewable energy uh, sources on the farm. Absolutely. I think that that's a really key point, actually, the small things. I, I, I don't often do this, listeners, but just a podcast shout out over on the Nature Friendly Farming Network podcast. At the moment, we are focusing for this, for the latest series on climate and what farmers are doing um to try and tackle the climate crisis on their farms so go and check that out um if you're interested in hearing more on that um where are we going the next i think we're sticking with yeah so we're going to wildlife now so i mean obviously the farm keeps you pretty busy um, yep. but you do enjoy your wildlife and you do some wildlife photography um and some I moth do. trapping as well yes um talk me through the moth trapping because moths are one of those groups that aren't perhaps as talked about as they should be when we think of farm wildlife perhaps what do you think that's right um so yeah i haven't been doing moth trapping for years and years it was something i hadn't even really thought or heard of about until um about 18 months ago and i went to see uh, someone on the other side of the county actually about elm trees and it was someone who was propagating elm trees okay and just as i was leaving i kind of saw these contraptions in his in in, in his house and well, what's that he, he said it was um it was uh, it had a couple of moth traps and 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 talk and just talked me through about what you know it was his hobby and what he did and I was, I was just a bit kind of uh, taken and taken in by it really uh and um so for me I, I then just looked into it and the first thing I which was fun was I, I decided I'd involve the children in it so um me and Bertie my young son um made our first moth trap which was this, it's called a skinner trap which is basically a, a, a box with a, a light and and like a kind of trap in the top that catches catches moths and um, we, we used that last, like, all through last season. And yeah, so it's a bit, it's a bit of an odd one, but 
it's an unusual hobby, I suppose. But um, for me, we've been setting up in the garden and there are so many species, everyone knows about butterflies. Yeah. Uh, and there's approximately, I think about 50, 60 species of butterflies in the UK with moths, there's something like 2000. And when you start oh, wow. to notice them, they're, they're all through the year. And you know, if you, if you actually start to look when you're you know, driving the car at night and, and you look, you know, they're, they're, they're out in the rain, they're out you know, when it's really cold and you just see them all the time and, and you realize how, how, how many species there are. Um, and when, I was gonna when say, how's your, how's, how is your idea? Um, well, it's getting better. Um, fortunately, Twitter is a very good resource because there's some absolute experts on there. So there's, there's one um, account called Moth ID. And if you, if you get flummoxed by one, you can, you can pop a picture to him and, he, and he's just a complete authority and, and we'll come back. But they have this, these fantastic names, you know, and, and, and some of the moths, and we've just been absolutely blown away with, with the, um, the camouflage and the colours and the designs. I could, I could name hundreds of them, the, well, not hundreds, I'm exaggerating, but I, could, I can name some I pick up, like the buff tip moth, which just looks like a twig. It's an extraordinary little thing. And you just, it's just completely evolved to look like a twig. Wow. Um, there was the, 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 the first time I had one was a, a burnished brass, um, which just looks like it's got this gold tin foil across its back. It just shone at, shone at me like a, like a bit of tin foil. Huh. And then you've got all the hawk moths from the elephant hawk moth and the poplar hawk moth and, um, and the privet hawk moth and the, the, you know, these great big things. And, and so we've you know, seen, seen those. The other good thing about it is, like I, where it all started with me, actually, um, it's, a, it's a shout out to the account, uh, the Farmers of the UK account. Okay. Uh, I'm sure you've done that as well, Ben. Uh, and, and I did it um, a couple of summers ago at the beginning of harvest. Yeah. And, and that triggered a whole change for me because I thought, what am I going to talk about this week? And I talked about the beginning of harvest. And then I started um, talking about, thinking about the wildlife on the farm and, and realised my ID skills really weren't very good. And I went into a few meadows where there's a lot of butterflies and I couldn't, couldn't name them. And I thought, this is actually really embarrassing. And I, I felt a little bit ashamed, a little bit cross. And, and it kind of, just jumped from that week on that account when I thought, right, I'm going to, I'm going to learn what, you know, learn what uh, I want to talk about the wildlife on my farm. I want to be passionate about it. Yeah. And I want to know what it is and, and what I've got here. Because I've got a nice farm. I've got these, you know, the chalk down and all these things. And I've not really uh, focused on it before. I'd always, and we'd done a lot of planting hedges and, and I'd always been you know, working with that, but I hadn't been, uh, my passion came in relatively recently is what I'm really saying. While I've got you on, um, I wanted to talk about uh, farmer cluster groups. Mm. Um, it's something that I think we've mentioned on the podcast before, but I don't think we've actually ever gone into detail um, about it. Um, so let's just go back to basics. I wonder if you could just tell listeners who don't know what farmer clusters are. Um, sure. And for any farmers out there or anyone else for that matter who's interested in getting involved, how do they get involved in one? Uh, okay, so um, the original uh, farm cluster, I think, in the whole country, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, was the Marlborough Downs uh, farm cluster group, which isn't a million miles from me. Okay. Yeah. Uh, we're not in it, um, but that was a, a, a role model and, and a benchmark for, for, for what potential they have. So, so effectively, it's a collection. You usually have what's called, a, if I can say it clearly, a facilitator um, who, who will kind of... Um, run and manage the group who's usually not a farmer themselves but, but an expert in in you know ecology and, and farm ecology uh, and um uh, so the Marlborough Downs was one in, in our area that basically uh, stimulated an interest in this area for, do, for, for doing some more um and uh so what 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 they're trying to do is to is to is to move um 
have a coordinated effort to move things forward on a landscape scale. So instead of all individual farmers thinking, well, I'm going to do a pond, and then someone else says, well, I'm going to plant some elm trees, and, yep. and someone yeah. else says, I'm going to do a flower meadow. It's all, everyone will sit down together, they'll all get the farm maps out, and they say, right, let's look at this, let's all step back and say, look at this, not just from the individual farm, but look at the whole picture of this whole landscape, Marlborough Downs, or in our, in our case, it's um, the Vale of Pusey, and say, how can we um, coordinate our efforts and do things en masse together for, for mutual benefit for ourselves, um, but also for, for, the, for the species that we're trying to target. Um, so that's, I think, the, the, the general idea. The benefit for farmers is by using an expert facilitator, it can, it, it can, it, it can um, open up funds that perhaps he wouldn't have had as an individual. Mm -hmm. um, and, and for some of the, uh, for some of the schemes, it's attractive for them to, to deal with one entity to then distribute across yep. that landscape. Um, but obviously for, it's, it's really important. The example I'll use, I'll jump straight to us. So I'm a member, of, well, we're a member, we're, we're on the uh, east side of the Pusey Downs Farmers Group. And from memory, it's 27 farmers. Um, and one of our targeted species has been uh, the Duke of Burgundy butterfly. So it's one quite close to my heart, and it's, it's probably our most special butterfly species and arguably our most important species on, on the farm for its, um, its in, in terms of its endangeredness. And by working, working for some of those species, um, you can't um, do the conservation work on an individual farm. It has to be done uh, over, over a bigger area um, because, because, of, because otherwise the, the, the um, isolated groups of breeding, um, the, the kind of numbers become too small in, in isolated pockets. So if you can make, um, if you can get the conservation right over the larger area, it makes the, the populations more viable. But no, Pusey Downs has been fa fantastic. We've got a wonderful facilitator called Simon Smart, um, who has also been an inspiration to me and a huge help. Um, and we've done all sorts of extraordinary projects like we've done, um, we've, we've turned, um, uh, I mentioned the Kennet and Avon Canal and all on the Kennet and Avon Canal, which also happens to run through the Vale, we've got these uh, Second World War pillboxes yep. along the length of the canal and, and all to, en masse we've converted quite a lot of these into bat sanctuaries. Oh, fantastic. So, you know, we've designed them inside to, you know, with all, all the kind of alcoves and things they need and, 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 and adjusted them and put hedges up to them and everything else. So That's a great so, idea. So, yeah, so that, that's the kind of project that as an individual we would never have thought of, but yeah. by working together collectively we, you know, we've been able to do things like that super and just just to finish up if, if someone is interested in getting involved in a cluster um how do you know how, how they find out more um well i guess the first thing to do is just just ask your neighbors and see if there is an existing cluster in 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 your area i, I would thought in most circumstances a farmer would would just have been told or, or should should know um how you how you start them up from from scratch i i i don't know but i guess he talked to like-minded neighbors um, I would have thought the Nature Farming Friendly Network probably could offer some advice, and, yeah. and I'm sure I'm sure Fwag could as well um, on on how to, how to, how to get the ball rolling. Yeah, you could um, always send Martin Lyons an email and yeah, add, add well, to his his inbox probably, of like fifteen hundred emails. I heard, I heard he has a few emails a day, <laughs> so he might get he might get back to you within a couple of weeks. Now I know he's a busy man. We always finish the the Farmers Focus shows. Um, with the same two questions. Um, the first one is if you had a message to the public, any message, what would it be and why? Um, I bet everyone says the same thing, don't they? But I, I'm thinking to say, um, well, thank, thank the public for, for their support. I think we've seen, you know, seen a lot of support for farming uh, from the public, but, but 
um, ask people where possible and where practical and where they can to, 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 buy, to buy British produce if they, if they can, if they have a choice, um, because you are then investing back in your own countryside, investing in you know, businesses on, uh, in your locality, and, and, and they can um, then invest in, back in the landscape. Brilliant. And finally, a message for farmers. Um, I think it will be taking forward again the idea of clusters. Work together. Don't work against your neighbours. Work work with your neighbours. Um, we may have some bumpy roads ahead, but if we actually all collaborate and work with each other and not against each other, then um, we'll be much stronger for it. Um, I did mention that in, in for many years, uh, I worked closely as a director of a grain cooperative. Um, so I've always been very much clued up with the idea of if, if, if you get a lot of farmers and they worked collaboratively, um, you can build great things. And I think grain, you know, grain, the grain cooperative system we have in this, in this country is, is um, something, again, we can be proud of. So I've always believed that farmers should work, work with each other, share resources, share knowledge, um, and, and cooperate as best as they can. And, and that's to everyone's advantage. Well, we'll leave it there. But David, thank you so much for coming on. You're a really busy man. You've got loads going on. So I honestly thank massively you. appreciate it. You've just spending more than an hour with me this evening. I said I could talk the hind legs off a donkey. I, I probably have done that. But no, it's been, been an honour and a privilege to, to, let, you know, to, let you, uh, to say my piece. So thank you, Ben. I much appreciate it. Thank you very much. And thank you for, for listening. Uh, next time, uh, we'll be talking branding and how to start food and drinks business. And I'll be joined by Richard Horwell from Brand Relations. Um, until then, have a great week and I'll see you next time.